Welcome to episode 392 with my guest, Michael Duffy. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. As I mentioned in a previous episode, I am currently uh, traveling, recording non-American guests for future episodes. So this uh, will be a little bit condensed in terms of surveys and, and things like that. I first want to tell you about one of our sponsors, The Great Courses Plus, Uh Some of life's biggest mysteries are tied to the human mind, but where does our personality come from and why do we act the way we do? Well, I imagine if you listen to this podcast, that's something that interests you. I have checked out The Great Courses Plus, and it's awesome. They have a ton of lectures on a variety of subjects, and they go deep into the subjects that they cover. Um, Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental, and you'll get a full month of unlimited access to their entire library. Uh, I, as I've shared before, I did one on the Irish identity. I learned all about James Joyce and and um, uh, W.B. Yeats. 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 Oh, I'm cringing that I'm going to mispronounce something when I'm in, when I'm in Ireland. Um, but yes, I can't recommend it enough, and listeners are digging The Great Courses Plus, too. So uh, thousands of lectures on topics like psychology, history, science, and the arts, even cooking or photography, and you can watch or listen anytime from anywhere with The Great Courses Plus app. So check out The Mysteries of Human Behavior. And again, the address is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental to start your free month thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental, and I'll put all of these links I mentioned up on the website under our show notes. want to also give some love to Care Of. If you take vitamins and you are tired of opening nine different bottles and remembering which one you took and which ones you should take, check out Care Of. It is a really cool monthly subscription vitamin service, and their stuff is made from effective quality ingredients that are personally tailored to your exact needs. Maybe I should take a vitamin for speech. Go take their quiz. Uh, It asks you about your diet, your health goals, your lifestyle choices, and then it makes it easy to figure out what vitamins and supplements you specifically need. It just takes a couple of minutes, so there's no more, you know, worrying about which thing you're getting low on, and they give you a 30-day supply of individually wrapped packets that you can grab on the go, take them traveling, uh, and it's about 20% less than similar brands at a local drug uh, or health food store. So uh, I've used it, and I think that's great. So for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, visit TakeCareOf.com and enter MENTAL. That's TakeCareOf.com and enter the code MENTAL for 25% off your first month of personalized vitamins. And, of course, I want to give some love to BetterHelp.com. It's great online therapy. I'll keep it short and sweet. Go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Fill out a questionnaire. They'll match you up with a BetterHelp.com counselor, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And if you're anything like the people I have talked to that have tried it, you will dig it, as I have. And you need to be over 18. Okay, I'm going to read... A quick survey, and then we're going to get to the interview with uh, with Michael. Let's see what we have here. 
thought I had one. All right, we'll read this one. Um, this is filled out by Ice Woman. That's a happy moment. I happen to be in the lucky minority of people who love their jobs. I'm an engineer, and I design refrigeration systems that are used in arenas and in industrial applications. I got sent on my first international business trip this week. I know a lot of people hate going on business trips, but I felt really proud that they thought I was valuable enough to fly out to a job site. I struggle with low self-esteem, and this piece of evidence that I am, in fact, valued for my work made me believe in myself just a little bit more. I also had to push my comfort zones, traveling alone, renting a car, driving around without GPS or data, figuring out how I should spend my time without supervision, all made me feel scared, but in the end, it made me feel a lot more capable. CBT for OCD has, if that's not the name of a, of a band, I don't know what it is. CBT for OCD has taught me to push through my fears, to run screaming at them, and to celebrate when I break through them. Today, I feel strong capable and independent and also grateful there's a part of me inside that i don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me it was so hard to be on the planet just doom people pleasing dread silent invisible just wailing stuck in the grip of the obsession derealization depersonalization the suicidal ideation i was so embarrassed and so full of shame if i don't get help and get what i need to get you know i did some horrible horrible things and i'm not gonna be here much longer god i wish i could go back and undo them but i can't so snipers would shoot in our sides my father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, it comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. And I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with uh, Michael Duffy, who is a Vietnam vet and uh, author of a book called From Chicago to Vietnam, A Memoir of War. And um, man, some of the descriptions in that book of things that you encountered in in Vietnam, uh, I, I can't imagine anybody goes through that and comes out unchanged. Um, you are exactly right. For once? <laughs> well, I don't know you well enough, so <laughs> I don't know what happened yesterday. <laughs> first, first of all, I want to say welcome to a Chicagoan. And can I just tell you how sickly comforting it was to hear somebody using the word jag off in a book? It's such a Chicago word. I don't hear it anywhere else. That guy's a that guy's a fucking jagoff. Oh my god! Yeah, jagoff was uh, probably the first slur that was hurled at me in grade school. <laughs> um, so I went back and I thought, "Geez, should I ask my dad what that means?" And uh, I didn't. I found out from a neighbor kid in the next apartment building over. But um, yeah, we use it a lot in Chicago. I don't use it much anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I was saying that I can't imagine anybody goes through that and comes out uh, unchanged. Well, that's right. And there's so many, um, um, 
you know, every war is different. Uh, this one happened to be the unpopular one. Um, so, you know, they weren't um, sending us care packages and, and rally around the flag. Uh, it, it, it was difficult because we, we all were listening to and reading the news back in the United States with the, um, the tumult with the convention in Chicago, the Democratic National Convention, and all of the protests. So we had this angst we carried with us when that happened. But uh, some of the descriptions I put in the book uh, over and above combat, which in itself is, um, you know, almost another world, the, uh, just the living conditions... Um, and the bureaucracy, that was the thing that that really struck me. Uh, Michael opens his book with describing landing in Vietnam. And uh, what did you tell them? Um, yeah, so in McCord Air Force Base out of Washington, we were issued all our clothes for Vietnam. Jungle fatigues, silly hats, that jungle hat, combat boots. Um, so I went over in a khaki short sleeve shirt and khaki pants, landed in Cameron Bay about three in the morning, um, and they threw our duffel bags in a big pile. Everybody clawed through them, and I ended up as being the last man standing without a bag. So I had nothing. Um, no weapon? No. Now, the weapon's interesting because no one had a weapon. They are issued down at the company level. Certainly the people that that uh, greeted us, yeah, they had weapons, but okay. the soldier, when he gets to his individual company, or in my case, battery, an artillery battery unit, that's when we were issued the weapons. Um, but really, you, you, you stand out like a, a, a big sore thumb with these bright khakis, so um, I was told on more than one occasion, uh, Lieutenant Duffy, you better get out of those khakis. You look like a target. Uh, is it because you you look like an officer? You, you looked a little of both. Um, we had little. I was. I had a gold bar, and of course that reflects the sun. But mainly, everyone else had green fatigues and kind of blended in with uh, the olive drab of uh, our equipment in Vietnam, and I was walking around with these um, khaki fatigues. Uh, I don't know, you know, at first I f was relaxed, but when uh, the next morning I was sent to Saigon and ran out on the tarmac, and that's where they told me the base was under attack. It was um, January 31st, 1960 1968, the opening day of the Tet Offensive. Um, so Which it is was, the shitstorm of the Vietnam War. That's what changed everything. It changed politics. It changed the thinking. And, uh, and more than anything, it changed the mind of the noted uh, news anchor, Walter Cronkite. Um, yeah, so, and it was a shitstorm in Tan Sanut Airbase. It was under attack. Small arms fire. Everybody was. All the soldiers were on the berm, facing outward. Um, helicopters, uh, gunships flying over, smoke billowing from 
uh, Saigon, and it was I was just dazed. And that's the first place uh, when I went on a, a second uh, aircraft, a helicopter, a Huey, to go up to a place called Benoit. I was told, get out of those khakis. Uh, you look like a target, Lieutenant. And uh, we uh, we quickly flew over a little berm, and then you could see Saigon. It was under attack. Uh, the Viet Cong had penetrated the American embassy. Um, the uh, a large force came in and took over the Newport Bridge, and many Americans died there. Um, they had fighting at the racetrack, the Chinese section called Cholon, um, and in the cemeteries, and uh, the city was not secure. It, it Maybe around the embassy where they finally uh, beat back that uh, Viet Cong offensive, but the city was still somewhat occupied, and um, and, and men were men were dying, um, Americans. So um, yeah, that was my introduction. So let's talk about you know the the part of your story that interests me the most because you know we've we've heard stories from people about Vietnam and the logistics of this and that. Um, but I, I would like to know emotionally what's the arc that somebody goes through from I might get drafted to I'm drafted or in your case you en enlisted so you could choose which branch to go into um, to landing to your assignment, to some of the things you encountered, to transitioning back home. I, I, I would love to know the the inner life, what you're thinking about yourself, what you're thinking about the world, your place in it, the war, our government, all those kinds of things. Right. Um, very good question. And uh, for me, um, I didn't want to go in the, to the Army. I didn't want to go to Vietnam. What I wanted to do was do what I loved, which was painting, drawing. So I applied to the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. Fantastic school. That's what I wanted to do. Um, for some reason, they didn't want me, and I received a rejection letter. Now I had the chutzpah to take my letter. I got on the L train and went down, and I went into the school, and I asked, to the, asked the secretary, can I speak to the guy who signed my rejection letter? And after an hour and a half, he saw me. You know, so I asked him. I was I said, it, it, "Can you reconsider this?" And he kind of stumbled and said, "No." And then I said, "Well, why did you re why did you reject me? Was it my academic performance in high school, or was it my art portfolio?" And he said, "Both." And I stormed out. The secretary was standing at the door, and she said, Mr. Duffy, it's time to go. So at any rate, what happened was I got home, and shortly thereafter I received a draft notice. I still didn't want to go into the military, but with the draft notice, I knew from talking to my friends down in Albion Beach in Chicago and up in Rogers Park that the draft notice meant they could pick you for the Marines, for the Navy, um, for the Army, possibly the Air Force, but mainly the Marines. I didn't want that. And they would assign you wherever they wanted to assign you within that, yeah, that branch. Exactly. And what your, 
you know, what your job was. So I was pretty good in mathematics and I took some tests and uh, I said, well, I'd like to be a road surveyor. And he said, we can do that for you. So I did enlist and usurped the draft where it would have been potluck, went into the military and um, was sent to uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana um, for the initial training and then sent to Fort Sill for the uh, survey training. Hold, hold, hold that thought. We'll come, we'll come back to that. But tell this story about bringing your draft card in to that room. Um, well, the draft board in our neighborhood was up a long flight of stairs. Let me describe this neighborhood in Chicago. It's a city neighborhood uh, filled with brick apartment buildings, some huge, some small. On every corner on the main street was a shop mainly filled with uh, uh, groceries and uh, uh and and then we had a kosher delis. The neighborhood was mainly Jewish and Irish. Um, so, um, in fact, I worked for uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Nathan Ramos, and his son was the uh, now deceased famous uh, producer uh, Harold Ramos. Ah, oh, wow! Um, and I worked for his father. So Harold come in. He was bigger and older than me. He scared me all the time. But um, so I got to know that culture very well. So at eighteen, I trundled down to the draft board, and we filled out a card, um, name, address, age, and uh, there were two women there, and they pulled out a long file cabinet drawer and stuffed my card in alphabetically with everybody else's um and they were like almost grandmother types if i remember correctly or they were older or they were older uh this is a draft board left over from world war ii in korea remember the men were gone so most of the draft boards were run by women um but here's what i found out later on and it it struck me in my stomach where I, i i just had this gut reaction of anger um a neighbor kid uh well let me back up um one of the kids i went to school with in grade school got drafted and um i ran into him oh maybe 15 years eight 20 years after vietnam he went to vietnam too and said he enlisted in the army like me because he got his draft board went to his neighbors and told that uh family and the woman said why didn't you tell me before? I could have gotten you out. My aunt runs is one of the women in the draft board. I heard that and my stomach pitted out. So what happened in probably any neighborhood in Chicago, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, the draft was corrupt. Um, and that's why they changed it to this lottery bingo, uh, bingo system where you run the balls with your birthdays. Uh, because I guarantee you, the women or men who ran those draft boards didn't draft their cousins, their sons, their neighbors, their good friends. No, they had full uh, authority there of what names to pull out. It's it's like the opposite of the uh, city of Chicago assigning jobs. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you I, give them only to your cousin, only to your nephew. <laughs> 
Right. Or and, at least how it used to be. Well, yeah, I it probably is not too, too much different, yeah. but uh, yeah, it was pretty... It, nepotism was the way, and it was political too. You, If you had a... Um, had an uncle in on the fire department or uh, working for the streets and sanitation, you, you had a better chance of getting a job. Um, so the other thing is this question about your question about the ARC. Um, I registered for the draft and, and just went on and tried to get into the Art Institute. When I didn't, I said, I'll try again. Um, you know, so I had to work. Um, the, uh, I was apolitical. In those years, if you had gotten into the Art Institute, would you have been able to avoid the draft? Of course. Okay, because there was a deferment for college students. College students didn't have to go, and I—that's uh, all I applied for foolishly. I, but I wanted to get into the arts, and I didn't want to go to the junior college, or I didn't want to mm-hmm. go to uh, some of the other schools around. Um, Chicago was easy; I could live at home. And that was phenomenal. Some of our our great um, artists in the uh, in the, our nation went to that school. To include one of the teachers that taught me when I went to college, um, but I didn't get in. And um, and again, as I said, I was apolitical. So I, I you know I'd watch what was going on. I said what? I I couldn't put two and two together. As most kids my age at eighteen were interested in two things cars and girls and if it wasn't that it was girls and cars and that's Mm. all we talked about so you know i was not political um at all and um uh when you when you stop and think back to how unaware an 18 year old is of what well is going to happen to him on a whim of a politician that perhaps just wants to get reelected. Yeah. What what kind of feelings come up? I'm sure you watched the the uh, PBS documentary uh, about Vietnam. Yeah, where, Ken Burns. Yeah, and and Lynn Novick, and you yeah, and you Lynn hear Novick. the audio of every president yeah. saying, "This is unwinnable, but I have to think about the upcoming election. We can't. We have to save face." And you think about men being sent and women into a fucking meat grinder. What feelings come up when you... Well, they were latent. Um, Even when I got back, I wanted to just stuff everything in that duffel bag like I did when I went over and begin my life as a student. And I did. Um, But they surfaced in different ways. I was in uh, Colorado Springs going to a small private liberal arts college called Colorado College, and they saved my life by, uh, I, I really believe that, they let me in six months early, and um, and during that six months, when I was in college, our unit was overrun. Many men were killed. Um, at any rate, uh, I'd go to Denver, and I said, I, I, to the VA up there, and I said, I can't sleep. And he said, well, I've I, you know, are you drinking coffee? And I said, yeah, no. <laughs> um, and I knew something was different because before I went to Vietnam, I, I couldn't be woken up. So there was a difference there. I recognized it early. And it, um, whether it was 
nerves or mental health or uh, the, uh, the grind of the war, um, probably all of the above. But the VA did not recognize that yet. It, they hadn't, they hadn't, uh, they're not, they w- were not up to speed. Um, so really those feelings about the politicians and the anger, they did come out. And it was about, you know, after I graduated from college, I began painting about Vietnam and painting these pictures. And, um, I mean, one guy said, looked at it and said, oh my God, this looks like the angriest painting I've ever seen. And they were. And I painted a lot of them. Can you describe one of them? Oh, I had huge birds flying over, palm trees dropping things uh, into the jungle with screaming faces and elongated arms and billowing smoke. Uh, Just, you know, that's kind of a verbal... Um, a verbal description of one of them that comes to mind. The other one I did, I did a couple of these. I had women with their arms up, you know, I called the title No VC, No VC. As you went through villages, they, the villagers, they didn't like the VC and they didn't like us. They wanted to just grow their crops. So they knew if we went through no VC, they're not here. And uh, so I did one on that level, a few of them. Um, and also, if VC or weapons were discovered, their village would be burned sometimes. Uh, yeah, well, sure. You saw that in the uh, Ken Burns, Lynn Novak uh, series on Vietnam. I, was, I only walked with the infantry on uh, really a couple of occasions, I was switched back to work into the artillery where we were closer. Uh, these are guns that send out these projectiles that then land in, um, most of them landed in muddy fields and blew up, uh, you know, rice paddies. Uh, some may have made their mark, but that's what I did most of the time. And, uh, the uh, army infantry and the marine infantry would walk out there into these village. But I knew about it. I've heard about it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Even some of the women in our little base would say, no VC, no VC. They were, I said, okay, no problem. Everything's, everything's cool. Do you have uh, any pictures of those paintings or any of the paintings still? Um, the paintings... Uh, went into a museum in Chicago called the uh, Vietnam Veterans Arts Museum, and that started back about 1990. A group of veterans, including a close friend of mine, and um, the the group had a had a uh, a show at the Name Gallery in Chicago. First time they showed Vietnam veterans art dealing with the war. Um, and they even posted guards at the front of the gallery for fear. You know, it was very close to still the angst in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a beautiful article was written by the New York Times. And I believe that was 1978 or 9. Mm-hmm. And then the museum came out of that. And it has now folded into a larger museum called the National 
Veterans Arts Museum in Chicago. It's on Milwaukee Avenue. And I gave them my paintings. Mm. I kept a couple back. I have a couple in my um, storage unit. Do you, back in but Chicago. do you have pictures of the ones that that you gave them? Because the reason I ask is I would like to um, maybe make some of them available, some of the pictures available for our monthly uh, donors. Yeah, let me um, see if you can find any. If you I'll, can, if I'll you, see. Yeah. I know I have a few. You know, at one point. That's all I did was paint about that. And then at one point, it stopped. And I just said, I don't want them. And I, I was never, uh, some of my fellow artists in this group were in love with their work. I never was. I said, I wanted it out of here. And was it essentially just a thing you wanted up and out of you and away from you? I guess so. I enjoyed the painting. I was skilled at painting. I knew how to. I did very well. You know, I, I knew how to mix colors, and um, and uh, I'm a very good draftsman. Um, these were mainly abstract, though, and, uh, you know, I, I'm not drawing the B-52 bomber as it comes over the South China Sea. It's just abstraction. The big black bird uh, represented the B-52 and I smeared um, smeared roof uh, no it was uh, yeah roofing cement black yucky cement on there and let it dry and I used chalkboard paint which they don't sell anymore because we don't use chalkboards um, and um, just slashed at it (laughs) Uh, but at one point I grew out of it I just said, no, I, I want to move on. And uh, I think it helped. It helped me uh, not be angry as much, maybe. Um, so let's, um, if you wouldn't mind reading a uh, section from your book that I uh, dog-eared. Uh, okay, Paul, you picked it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I when I, when I told him, uh, when I asked him if he would mind reading um, a selection from the book, uh, he said, oh, which one? And I told him the one that he's going to read, and he was like, oh, that one. And uh, he told me that that was obviously the hardest one to to write, um, but uh, to me it's the, it's one of the more compelling passages in the, in the book, so if you don't mind. Sure. Thank you, Paul. And um... If you could give them a backstory on this, uh, set it up kind of. Right. Uh, so... He picked five pages. There's 321 pages in my book, and he picked these five. Um, So towards the end of my tour of duty, um, our unit, which consisted of six 105-millimeter artillery pieces, uh, really they they were the same pieces in Germany in World War II and in Korea. I had all the logbooks, and I was appointed executive officer. That means... I was in charge. The captain above me um, did a lot of work, uh, work in their offices, moved things around, but I was the guy on the guns every day, every night, every time they fired, I was behind them. Um, I made sure they uh, shot straight because if they don't shoot straight, um, innocent, innocent people without firearms get killed. Um, Sometimes our own troops get killed. So I had been working day and night trying to train another 
officer below me to take over my job. And uh, I had a tremendous conflict with uh, some of the officers in there. I was the youngest. I didn't have a high. I didn't have a college degree. I was. I had a high school diploma and six months of OCS. So, which is officer? That's yeah. In, in those training. years, all that's all you needed. Most of the people I served with were career military. They had a four-year degree, went through ROTCs. They were three, four years older than me. So it was difficult for me, but I took my job very seriously, and I was very good at it, meaning we did not make, I, I did not make mistakes. So one night I was just exhausted um, after being up firing. We'd fire every night, uh, 50, 80, 90, 120, sometimes 300 rounds at night, and the guns blasting away in muck and filth. You couldn't sleep. You couldn't take your boots off. <clears throat> the radio would crackle with another fire mission. You'd hear machine gun fire from the infantry, and they were screaming. And you really needed your wits because you could not make a mistake. So the fella I was training, I did not have confidence that this guy was should do the right job and uh, be out on the guns every night. And I didn't want to hand over the battery. Reluctantly, I gave in to my fatigue. And um, I, I uh, uh, gave him the battery that night. And there was a, a horrible accident. And I'll read from my book now. <clears throat> When I found out what had happened, I ran to the gun and demanded to know who caused this monumental fuck-up. Where was Lieutenant Hart last night? I soon found out. He had spent the entire night in the FDC bunker, Fire Direction Control Bunker, with his buddy Owen in a feckless orgy of jokes, laughs, and coffee. Meanwhile, an exhausted gun crew had made a sequence of errors that, under proper supervision, could have been avoided. Hart was seduced by Owen to forget his responsibility and forget my nightly mantra to him as we walked the guns. Don't let the guns fire without supervision. I knew, I'd, I, knew I would have caught this error and the mistake would not have happened. I audibly cursed myself for taking the night off. You stupid fucking shit, Duffy, I said to myself. I also felt betrayed with his arrogant attitude toward me. Owen dismissed all our training from Officers Candidate School back in Fort Sill. Lieutenant Hart fell for Owen's picture of me as an overcautious micromanager. The guns fired without supervision. There was no officer at the guns as our SOP, Standard Operating Procedure, required. For the first time since he had arrived in our unit, Owen looked worried. His haughty attitude vanished. I stood in the FDC bunker demanding an explanation. He and Hart told me they were aware of the error shortly after it happened. The gunners informed FDC that an error probably occurred. Soon after this horrible news, an emergency radio message came from our command ordering all the artillery batteries to check their fire or cease firing. 
and review their missions. A military post in Saigon had reported seeing incoming rounds. Hart and Owen did not wake me because they believed nothing could be done until morning anyway. That was the only wise decision they had made. I was furious. I left the FTC bunker distraught and seething with anger. I walked to the headquarters bunker and waited as our new captain finished a discussion with the first sergeant. They both looked terrible. When he finished, he turned to me and in a somber voice told me that our guns were responsible for three civilian deaths. He asked me if I was traveled to Saigon to survey the damage and talk to the family of the dead. I hesitated, thinking to myself that this visit to Saigon should be a job for Lieutenants Hart and Owen. He looked at me with panic in his face, then said, Duffy, I need to debrief Hart and Owen. Battalion headquarters is flying a major into our unit this afternoon. He wants to review all of last night's fire mission. He hesitated, then said, The Major wants to review this fuck-up himself. I said, okay. That was the first and the last time I heard him say the word fuck-up. Lieutenant Wynn, our Arvin neighbor, would accompany me as an interpreter because I could not speak or understand the Vietnamese language. I found a driver and a jeep and we were off to Saigon. We drove out of camp and headed north. The normally pleasant drive through the lush rice paddies was blurred with my anger. The road from Nabe to Saigon received light military traffic. Beyond our camp there was only the small navy base. As we neared Saigon, I watched the rice paddies give way to lots filled with trash. The garbage the Americans left behind became the treasure of the Vietnamese scavengers. They would spend whole days looking for beer cans, lumber, nails, or any other commodity that was in short supply and that they could sell on the streets of Saigon. Lieutenant Wynn leaned forward and in broken English explained that the area in Saigon we were traveling into was very dangerous. He told me that he would handle things and we must not stay long. He took a deep drag off his cigarette and nodded to me. He looked worried as he repeated the words, we must not stay long, very dangerous. We wander away through the narrow streets of Saigon, kicking up dust from the unpaved streets. Women and children and old men stood in the portals of tin roof shacks made of weathered boards and held together with rusty nails. They quietly watched us pass. I felt good about having Lieutenant Wynne with me. He could speak the language, and these people could see that I had one of them as a friend. But the people did not look friendly. They stared at me with blank eyes. My heart began to thump as fear rose in me. From my quick glance at the charts this morning, I knew that we were coming close to the point of impact. I didn't know what to expect. God, how I wish I had Owen and Hart with me so they could feel the despair here and experience this awful mission. We passed a Saigon cowboy. He flicked the butt of his cigarette at us as he yelled, Fuck you, G.I. Lieutenant Wynn guided the driver through a series of narrow, narrow dirt streets. 
To me, this was nothing but a maze of confusing lanes, where, if left alone, I would never find my way out. There were no street signs, no curbs, no sidewalks. Everything seemed to be built without thought or planning. Lieutenant Wynne had a driver stop near a narrow canal filled with a fetid liquid, the color of used motor oil. Barges and sampans were lined up against each bank of this narrow waterway. I saw people living on the vessel, their laundry hanging from ropes stretched from the craft to a post on the dock. The stench from the canal made me breathe through my mouth. I watched a young boy urinate off the side of a sampan sampan into the water. This channel was a dead-end slip built by the French businessman at the turn of the 19th century. At one time, the canal provided a transfer point from land to sea for the bountiful Asian rubber product. The commercial vessels that had docked here 50 years earlier were long gone, replaced by paint-chipped wooden sampans. Poverty, filth, and hopelessness had a new home here. Lieutenant Wynne looked at a piece of paper he held in his hand and motioned the driver toward a lane leading away from the canal. I secretly thanked him. As we passed a group of children, they yelled in unison, Number one G.I. That was a common signal to the G.I.s to toss candy, candy bar or gum. I was in no mood to toss candy today. Our driver slowed at at Lieutenant Wynne's request and then stopped in front of a rusty wood and tin structure. It had an open portal with a long, narrow hall leading into living quarters. There was a second story to this house with a low ceiling. It was also made of corrugated tin and gray wood planking. A rope ladder provided access to the second floor. This was poverty in pure form. No running water, no electricity, and no sanitation. At first glance, the house looked unharmed. But after a closer look, I realized there was no roof. Our shells had fallen toward the rear of the shelter and scored a direct hit on this family's sleeping quarters. We were told that a young woman and her two children, a 12-year-old girl and a 9-year-old boy, had occupied the space. A small crowd gathered around us, and they all had expressions of sorrow on their faces. I began looking over the damage as Lieutenant Wynne talked to an old man with a wispy white beard. The old man, who I assumed to be a grandfather or some important family elder, was grateful we had come, and he accepted our words of sympathy from Lieutenant Wynne. Now he wanted us to view the bodies. We followed him in as he walked down a long passage. My breath became heavy, and all I wanted to do was leave. I did not want to follow this old man, and I didn't want to see the corpses. I had seen dead V.C. on the roads during the Tet Offensive. That didn't bother me, because they were armed combatants. But the thought of seeing a dead woman and her children made me feel wretched. We entered a dimly lit room. An old woman in the corner was sobbing, and a few other people were standing near her. All eyes met mine as I entered, except those of the old woman. She continued sobbing quietly. I greeted the people with a nod, and I lowered my head in an awkward sign of respect. The old man introduced us to the others and explained why we were there. 
My eyes fell on the woman in the corner again. She barely responded to our presence. The old man gestured toward a table in the room. It took me a moment before I realized why. There, on the kitchen table, was a white sheet with three forms beneath it, one larger than the others. The sheet was covered with flies, and they were buzzing around our heads. As I began to comprehend what I was viewing, my composure changed, and fear and panic replaced my ignorance. My, th my throat dried, and it was hard to swallow. The old man reached for the top of the sheet. Something inside of me pleaded with him to leave the bodies covered. God, how I wish Owen and Hart were there to smell the death and feel this grief. These innocent children had every right to live, and this woman, who was in the prime of her life, was now gone. Our guns had taken their lives because Hart and our crew had not done their jobs. The old man didn't hear my silent request, and he pulled back the sheet, revealing a horrific sight. I, started the life, I stared at the lifeless remains of a mother and her children. Their bodies were charred beyond recognition. They looked like grotesque figures. They looked, they looked like grotesque clay figures fired in a kiln with a matte black glaze. Their arms and legs were contorted as if even in death they were telling me how horrific the night before had been. I felt an I felt an overwhelming sense of guilt for taking last night off. I turned to the faces in the room. All eyes were now on me. Even the woman in the corner had stopped sobbing, and she too was watching me. I felt for a moment that I had betrayed I felt for a moment that I had been betrayed by Lieutenant Wynne. He had brought me to this room to punish me for the death our guns had brought to this family and to his people. I glanced at him and realized that he was as uncomfortable as I was. I turned to leave the room. As I walked down the narrow, narrow passage, my head swelled and my anger was overwhelming. I staggered onto the street and into a brilliant sunlight. It took all my effort to keep from vomiting. The dusty heat on the dirt road was now a relief. I tumbled into the jeep. My driver, half asleep, started the engine. Lieutenant Wynne followed close behind me, nodding his head to the somber crowd as they walked out into the daylight. I could tell he, too, wanted out of this hellish place. We silently drove back to the battery. I was sick with anger, not only at heart and own, but also at myself for taking the night off. This would not have happened had I been on duty. I kept thinking to myself that when I was on duty, I watched every move of the gun crew. I was aware of their fatigue. I knew where mistakes could and did occur. I now felt an enormous sense of responsibility. I also had a stinging anger at the gun crew. They knew better than to cause a stupid mistake like this. 
The NCOs on duty should have checked the powder charge. The men fired the gun in a sloppy, unthinking, and careless manner. They killed three innocent people, and then they went to bed. After we arrived back at our compound, I passed Owen, and I stopped him. I told him of the scene I had witnessed in Saigon. Owen all but shrugged, and then he turned and walked away. I was left alone with this horrible image. I wanted to share this picture with someone and pass along my sorrow and my rage. I called the gun crew into our empty club for a meeting. They slowly filed in, one by one. They knew I had just returned from Saigon. They were quiet and reserved. They sat and gave me their full attention. I started by asking each one of them if they had children at home. Each man looked at me and spoke. Some had some small infants. Some had toddlers. One man had a six-year-old girl. The others shook their heads. I persisted. What about a niece or a nephew? They nodded their heads. They all knew someone at home of a young age. By this time, they looked puzzled. They thought I was going to give them an ass-chewing and a punishment, maybe even a letter of reprimand. I continued. I asked the men gathered in front of me to picture these children they loved and cared for back at home. I waited a moment and then I asked, Now, do you all have a picture of a child in your mind? They all nodded and I went on. Now, I want you to picture that child burned and twisted in some horrible state of death because that's what I saw this morning. This was the result of your carelessness and disregard for procedure. They looked away from me. My voice cracked, and I stopped talking. I regained my composure. Then, with a wave of my arm, I dismissed the group. They quietly filed out. I hoped my words gave them some feeling of the gravity of their error. There wasn't a punishment I could think of that would match the consequences of this horrendous mistake. Later that night, I found myself behind one of our buildings near our generator. It hummed away as tears filled my eyes. Physically, I was spent, and emotionally, I was exhausted. I felt I was drowning in a sea of responsibility that I never could have imagined, and it was crushing me. I was staggering under the weight of decisions I did not want to make. I longed for the comfort of Chicago. For a moment, I thought of the familiarity of my old, old neighborhood, of my close friend Joe Kiefer and our political talks in Cindy Sue's coffee shop. I thought of Chris, my old girlfriend, and our good times riding around in her father's Buick. Vietnam was overwhelming, and now I carried one more horrifying image. God, how I wanted to go home. Thanks, Michael. What, uh, as you were reading that, did, were you thinking or, or feeling, did anything kind of come up? Of course. Um, 
I didn't want to read it, uh, but I... Thank you for doing that. Yeah, um, I wrote it and read it and reread it. I'll bet 150 times before I got that specific passage down where I felt it would transfer to the reader the emotions that I felt. And yes, I just felt them again. It's still painful to uh to read that very much so you know um as are some of the other Mm -hmm. passages in this book um and i uh i think looking back um i was you know a young kid with a high school diploma and six months of ocs that could never prepare someone to take on that challenge. And um, I, looking back now, I know why they gave me that job. Because unlike those other lieutenants, I took it seriously, I took responsibility, and I, I, watched, I watched those guns like a hawk to make sure um, they fired correctly. Um, so yeah, it brings up some, uh, stirs up the old pot. Yeah. You know, when, when you were behind those guns on a typical day, how did you deal with the thought that even the ones that were aimed correctly were taking lives? Well, um, I don't, I I didn't think would you just compartmentalize it? it? Well, you have to. Uh, and secondly, quite often when we fired, we would have the infantry on the radio and you could hear that they were under attack. Right. And they were calling in artillery. And they said, we're, they're coming towards us. I see. We're getting, you know, a, a, a wave of them coming at us. Here are the coordinates, Please you know, hurry. And um, there's another spot in there where I was I was sick with amoebic dysentery and I, I couldn't even function. And I remember this screaming on the phone, we need a fire, we need help. So you kind of transfer that all of a sudden you're there and you need, these guys will be dead unless you drop these artillery. Yeah, the artillery might kill the enemy, but it might fall and then keep them from coming into the infantry. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not trying to assign any type of judgment. I just yeah. want to know what somebody experiences when they're yeah. in the situations that, that you... Yeah, I, uh, um, I really just wanted to fire them correctly. Many of the... T- I, I would guess the vast, the vast majority of artillery rounds we fired each night didn't hurt anyone, didn't kill anyone. A lot of them were called harassment and interdiction fires where it was a road crossing where they thought VC might be. Now, remember, Vietnam in in those years had a curfew and the only ones out would have been Viet Cong. Mm -hmm. You went into your farmhouse, your hut, you didn't come out. If you were in Saigon, you didn't go on those streets. Uh, of course, we didn't fire artillery into Saigon, 
um, we were firing back out where the infantry was walking. So there were not a lot of people mm -hmm. out. Um, and if they were, they were probably the bad guys mm -hmm. that were trying to kill us. Um, and we were firing where they might have collected. Um, I talk about the rocket attack that came out of the jungles one night. Um, you know, they set it up, and so we fired back at them, and now we knew that that was an area where they, they could uh, attack us. The feeling you have when you're there is to, to do the job, and I would uh, imagine it would be a lot different for an infantryman um, where I was in the artillery, I was back maybe six, seven miles firing. Mm -hmm. uh, they they would probably have a different answer to that question. Yeah. Um, but by this time, uh, that arc that you talked about earlier in the program, now I wanted to go home. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I was listening to the radio and hearing uh, crazy protests in Chicago in the '68 convention and i'm going what what's going on back there um up until that point had you felt that the war was just and necessary i felt i had a duty uh to go in as an american citizen um i remember the words and you and your listeners might remember uh the author um, um ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And I felt, okay, I got my draft notice. And That's what I'm doing. Um, I, I was most of the time apolitical and really not up on, uh, on the war. I, I was not sophisticated enough with my high school diploma to say, I didn't know where Vietnam was. I needed to get a map out. Yeah. Vietnam, where's this place? Uh, for our younger listeners, uh, the, the author he's referring to is uh, uh, President John F. Kennedy, who said it in his uh, inauguration speech. And, um, the, and the other thing I want to say to uh, some of our younger listeners that might not know this, um, these were the last days for people having faith in their government. Um, the, from the mid sixties through Watergate, which was roughly kind of wrapped up in 74, 75, um, America got its cherry popped, um, in many ways. Um, it, how, how would you phrase it? Well, the bright light of the press came into the white house in Congress, and we saw what we thought was a steady ship going through the sea really wasn't that steady ship. And there was, at times, more interest in getting elected than bringing these young men home to the United States um, and ending that war. And by um, three presidents in a row, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon are all there are there are phone transcripts of all three of them saying, "I know I can't win this war, but I've got an election to think about," which is nauseating to think about. 
right. I think the worst part uh, was uh, the end there when President Nixon came up with the slogan, Peace with Honor. Well, honor meant a lot more Americans were going to stay over there, and um, many of them died, many of them lost a limb, lost their eyesight. Um, it was... Uh, um, and Vietnamese. Uh, many, yeah, and civilians too. Um, so it, it's tragic that they... Any, uh, well, any of them couldn't have set up, uh, said, this is an error. We need to get out now. We'll give the equipment to the South Vietnamese Army and they can fight their own war. Remember, South Vietnam was a sovereign country and North Vietnam was a sovereign country and the North Vietnamese invaded South Vietnam. So this... Uh, when we left, it was still, South Vietnam was still alive as a government. It took two years then for them to fall. Mm -hmm. um, they could have pulled out and just said, here's the equipment, South Vietnam. Nixon could have done it in 1970. He didn't. And, um, yeah, uh, not only that, in 1968, I remember listening on the radio three important news items. First one uh, would have been the assassination of Martin Luther King. Um, and it was just, I'm thinking, whoa, what, what happened here? Um, I heard him speak in Chicago in uh, 1965. And uh, he really interested me as a, as a, a powerful figure. And the high school I went to, uh, I was taught by French Christian brothers. And in the summer, some of them went down and worked in the South in the voting rights uh, march. And we were taught, uh, we were reading some heavy literature back then, Black Like Me. And in no uncertain terms, he was doing the right thing. Um, so that was the message we got. Um, and that was horrible. But the next one was Bobby Kennedy, who I thought, well, this guy might bring me home. But the the real worst one for me was when I heard Lyndon Johnson on the radio say, I will not accept, and I will not uh, put my name in uh, and accept the nomination for president of the, Dem uh, of the United States. And I thought, this guy sends all of us over here and then he quits. Okay, I'm done. It's not working. What did you, what did you think or feel Anger. in that moment? Anger. I had a little portable radio and I'm sitting in a filthy uh, sandbag filled with mud, uh, our FTC bunker, and I heard it on the radio and I, that coward, that coward. He takes on this. He wraps up the military. He did it. The, mil uh, the generals didn't do it summarily. They have to go to the president. Wraps it up for 500,000 troops and then s instead of saying, this is an error, come on home. I'm out of here. Pretty angry. So that whole year was tumult. So let's go to, let's wrap it up with when you come home. 
Um, give me some moments post-Vietnam. Could even be something that happened last week where the war has changed who you are, how you view yourself, the world, maybe even how you sleep, how you walk down the street, how you experience the 4th of July, friends of yours. Um, yeah, uh, good questions. Um, 4th of July, I never wanted to go to another fireworks display uh, to answer that quick quickly. Is there a Vietnam vet that enjoys the 4th of July? I've gotten better because I raised three daughters and, oh, we're going to the... I said, mm, okay. <laughs> and as long as I sit not next to them blowing off. Um, but I have some friends, you know, I raised my family in the suburb of Chicago. And of course, hey, we're going to have a big fireworks display in my backyard. Come on over. And I said, yeah, you kids go on over. I'll stay home. Um but uh, sleep finally came, and uh, it, you know, a, a lot of uh, a lot of work there. Um, what kind of work did you put in, and when did sleep come? Well, in the late seventies, uh, the via uh, the Veterans Administration put together these vet centers where uh, groups, and I was living in Denver at that time. Groups of veterans would talk about their experiences. That really helped. Um, Can you give me some moments from that? Yeah, um, if you remember any particular well, ones. Well, essentially, telling about a lot of the stories I put in the book, but um, I just f was interesting to see some of the different personalities in those uh, those those groups. Some guys felt anger because they said, we could have won the war had we just stayed there. And I'm thinking to myself, really? I don't think so. Um we had a uh, half a million men, and I couldn't go outside the barbed wire to get a cup of coffee. That's how dangerous it was. Um, we had those type of GIs. We had others that uh, were just uh, focused on their marriage, which was dissolving, and they didn't understand why. A lot of that. This, a lot of, these a lot groups, of substance abuse. Um, yeah, not so much. We didn't bring no? that up. You know, I'll tell you what. They asked me, oh, yeah, how much dope did you smoke? And I said, I didn't smoke. I didn't, I didn't go near it. I didn't go near anything because remember these guns. Yeah. Now, all I have to do is, uh, you know, smoke a joint and drop around in uh, Westmoreland's tent, you know. <laughs> no, I, I was on. And that night, the, the passage I read... Had I been awake, this that would not have happened, because I know how it happened, and I I don't explain that. I may, maybe I did. I don't remember. Uh, you'll have to read the book to yes, find out how it happened. You did. You did that. The wrong charge yeah. was put in. They right. borrowed ammunition from the the. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, so um, that would not have happened. So that's why you know. Yeah, yes. I drink beer, and I spent one night in Saigon. I think you read about that. Mm -hmm. Your listeners would love that chapter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, the the groups were cathartic. Very you got much started so, yeah. getting some help from yeah. the VA. Yeah. Um, so they did come up to the plate. And as I mentioned earlier, when I got back 1960, in 1969, I went up. They didn't know what was wrong. But they did come. They, the Veterans Administration did see a problem, and they addressed it with these vet centers. 
Um, and I really have nothing but praise, nothing but praise for the uh, Veterans Administration in this country. They have treated me and my fellow vets that I've talked to with respect, and they have answered our questions, whether it be the Agent Orange question or the post-traumatic stress questions. They've done a good job. Now, that's not to say that down in some parts of the country, somebody fudged some papers in one hospital to make it look better. That happens anywhere. Mm -hmm. That happens in any corporation. They cut a corner. But by and large, I have nothing but praise for the Veterans Administration. Well, that's that's refreshing to hear because uh, um, the, the people that I talk to and the stories that I've read, not necessarily Vietnam vets, but Gulf War veterans, um, uh, I hear a lot of frustration and them trying to seek uh, mental health help and being given, uh, you know, an, an appointment five months from now uh, when they're in a state of uh, uh, crisis. Um, so I imagine, yes, it varies. But thank God you you got the help that that you uh, yeah. needed. What what um, what was it like when you saw the uh, the Vietnam Memorial? Oh, very moving. Yeah, I saw it only once when it was in Chicago. No, no, not that would have been the facsimile of the uh, Vietnam Memorial, the main one in Washington, D.C. Oh, oh, that's right, because I, I saw the one in Chicago. Yeah, they moved one around. It's a fraction of the size. But the one in Washington was designed by a Yale art student by the name of Maya Lin, and uh, she won it, and there was tremendous controversy about it. Uh, I remember... Um, James Watt was the interior secretary, and somebody said, it'll be a black scar in the earth. Well, it, ha- it is absolutely stunning. And it, my only tragedy is I had a young man die in my arms, and I never got his name. So I don't even know where this guy is. And I, I discussed that. Maybe you remember that story mm-hmm. in there. Uh, but my captain, the captain uh, who... Uh, who took over just about when I was ready to leave. We got to be very good friends, and unfortunately he was killed. And I, I, I go up to his name and see him. And, and what, what is it? Can you describe uh, what, what you feel when just, you see that? Just tragedy and sorrow, and, you know, it's, it's not... Um, it, it's, it's like going into a cemetery and seeing somebody you loved. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just sorrow, you know, and, uh, well, I could tell you as a, uh, civilian and somebody who was too young to know anybody, uh, when it, this facsimile came to Chicago, I went on my lunch break and I thought, oh, you know, it'd be interesting. It might be a little boring. And within five minutes I had tears streaming down my face. So, and I would see vets, um, oh, yeah. looking at it and, and I remember thinking to myself, if I, am experiencing these emotions what is it like for them yeah i stay away from it i mean i know i the traveling wall i i know what it is and i think it's phenomenal that they can bring that wall to city to city uh but i went to the the real one and i just don't want to go back yeah anytime soon i will maybe Mm -hmm. down the road um and i'll i'll point out there's over 58 
1,300 men and women mm-hmm. that are on that wall. Um, and these were the valent, uh, valiant uh, nurses that a lot of them would work under combat conditions and get mortared and get killed. Um, you know, they were, they were tough, tough women that had a horrible, horrible job. I mean, thank God I could take this kid and say, here, he's yours now, that Mm -hmm. kid that was, uh, got blasted in the convoy. So, uh, nothing, nothing but respect for them, too. Would you say that of all the things that have helped you, um, the most helpful has has been the groups and and co- connecting to other vets, or is there something else, or is it just hard to even say what what was more helpful? No, I know exactly what the one thing, and I shouldn't say thing, person was that helped me through this, and that was my wife, my deceased wife, and um, uh, you know she deserves a medal. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and uh, just putting up with me. So um, it was that support. Can you give us some snapshots of that? Well, uh, early on when I met her, we weren't even married. She knew I was having trouble sleeping. She said, well, let's go see. I I hear there's a... I didn't have health insurance at that time. Um, the VA at that point didn't know what was going on. They said, we don't know, you know, uh, why you can't sleep. Here's some sleeping pills. <clears throat> So at any rate, she's brought me to a a, a group, and uh, no, it wasn't a group. It was a some fellow that was teaching transcendental meditation, which was very popular back then. Mm. And I, he taught me how to start with a mantra. It's not unlike the mindfulness, which is so popular today. Yes. And yeah. uh, you know, my my uh, my she wasn't my wife then. She says, "Let's try this." And you know what? It helped. Yeah. It's just kind of calming. And, it's, and uh, so she was the one that did that. And then, um, you know, throughout the life, she was very supportive of everything. The book I started writing way back, when, you know, uh, and she helped me with it. And, you know, I'd say, read this. What do you think? And it was my, all my paintings uh, about Vietnam, which I did many, many paintings. Um, and there in Chicago at that Veterans Arts Museum, um, you know, I'd call her down into my basement. I said, what do you think of this one? Tell me about that. So that was the most yeah. important person that helped me kind of get out of the funk of Vietnam. Yeah. But it never leaves you. It never yeah, leaves how could you. It? How could it? No, I mean, it's like a motion picture right in your face. So what does help you move is time. And then I raised a family, and that helped um, my wife and and just work. I still work. I love work. You know. So. Well, Michael, I want to thank you for coming and, and sharing your story. The uh, audio dropped out right there as we were was saying goodbye. So I'm uh, I'm picking it up here and uh, thanking thanking Michael again for sharing. And uh, wow, some of the specifics of his experience as he details them not only in this episode but in his book uh makes it so real and i i always wish that when it comes to something difficult and traumatic and 
something that requires a lot of thought before we do it, something like war, that we would hear from people who experienced it in ways like this that are really detailed, which is why I think it is so fucked up that we, that the press has had, has decided to not push to see, to photograph coffins when we are in a war of our choosing. But I don't want to go off on a political rant right now, but thank you. Thank you, Michael. And just want to read a quick survey. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself prodigy as fuck. Well, he has AF, and I'm going to assume it means uh, as fuck. He's straight in his 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Have suspicion of being raped while blacked out. I feel a mix of powerlessness and nonchalance. He's been physically and emotionally abused. He writes, here's a couple. Once I had a friend locked in a basement with a broom handle in his ass, and I was so afraid that I hung out with the guy who did it. We broke into houses, stealing money and drugs. We were all about 10 years old. I was too scared to help my friend in fear of not being accepted by this demented, racist group of people uh, associated with the guy's older brother's friends group. I would let him beat me up and give him money. That was my parents as well. Also, my mom is a Scientologist and just said that I could be, quote, audited. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Absolutely. I struggle with my passivity in this, but I like to think I'm learning or at least taking some kind of burden off humanity as a whole, as if me dealing with fucked up people will be my contribution. I actually pride myself on bearing the, quote, brunt. I'm going to give you some tough love here. That is a cop-out for your codependence and fear of confrontation. And more than more than that, you are worthy of not having to anoint yourself that person. And I say that because I I have gone that route of avoiding confrontation for fear of getting beaten up or yelled at and you know you can get your discomfort up front or you can have it stretched over a lifetime and magnified and I prefer to learn tools to set boundaries and deal with toxic people rather than feeling like I'm a nice person by tolerating them. Because you know what? If somebody's toxic and everybody rolls over around them, that person is never going to get a wake-up call. The, the, the chance that that person will ever change is next to zero if nobody ever stands up to that person. But if everybody in their life starts bailing on them, it's not a guarantee that person's going to take a look at themselves but it increases the chance that they're going to take a look at themselves. And so actually by standing up to people, we are doing them a potential service. And if you talk to some people who have recovered from drug addiction or any kind of compulsive behavior, they will tell you that somebody telling them the truth or setting a boundary with them might have saved their life. Darkest thoughts. 
as I read this, I'm tempted to go darker, of course, uh, in parentheses, not acting on them, usually just leaving cryptic messages in my pockets as I hang from a tree near the still smoldering house of which I just tormented a recently dead family in, all kinds of rape for years and psychological scenarios. My imagination is sick. You know, a lot of us have sick imaginations. It's what we do with it that matters. And don't ever judge yourself for the scenarios that your brain is painting. The, the, the time to be alarmed is when you find yourself making plans towards these sick scenarios where people would be hurt, where you would be hurting people. Um, darkest secrets. I licked a girl's butthole while she was passed out. I'm an inc- uh, I'm incredibly good at being credible, but if I'm sober and you have money that I can steal, it will be spent on alcohol. Um, it sounds like getting sober would be a really good place to start. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Usually young girl starts getting, usually young girl gets started off being adventurous, turns to getting way in over her head, turns out right gang raped white american girls who are slightly unconventionally attractive smart enough to feel shame uh one porn comes to mind when they make her sing nursery rhymes while getting fucked in the ass and you can see her remember a time when she didn't have to resort to that and starts to cry a little as she meagerly sings makes me feel like i'm sick and the whole world is sick and i bet people get crazier which is crazy it's what they do with it, man. If if there is pornography, and this is just my opinion, where consenting people are role-playing something like that, I don't see anything wrong with somebody getting off on that as long as it's not taking away from other areas of their life. It is If it is just pure fantasy for a release and it's not compulsive and difficult to control the frequency or length with which they engage in those fantasies um it can it can be healing for a person to embrace some fantasies and you know obviously there's there's no hard and fast uh you know one thing applies to everybody but as a whole there's so much shame around what gets us off and after reading over 8,000 of these surveys over the last eight years, I can tell you everybody has something that pushes their button and makes them come really hard that they would be ashamed to admit to a group of people at a cocktail party. I think I just got an idea for my next theme party. Anyway, uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? And and just to pause, if, if like I said, if these fantasies are becoming things that you are obsessed with, that is something that is a red flag for you to go get help immediately. Because if you don't, it could lead to escalating behavior and then you actually hurting someone. 
what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would say a lot of things to the racist psychopaths I grew up with, but they know where my parents live, and I don't want retaliation. Also, I'd like to sway my mom into not abiding by Scientology with immediately yelling or crying. I would like to see you separate from people that cause you pain or at least create some distance instead of fantasizing about changing them. And that's that's where the crazy of codependency lives, is us waiting for someone else to change because we think if they change, we'll experience peace or happiness. And what it usually is, is a distraction from us looking at our own pain. What, if anything, do you wish for to quit drinking uh, but actually, and then it just ends there. I don't know if that's a, um, I think that'd be a great place to start, man. You might be able to untangle a lot of these feelings if you get sober, get your head straight, start dealing with the fears and the anger that are underneath addiction. Cause it's not about the drink or the drug or the, you know, the, whatever the addiction is. It's, it's about the feelings underneath it and finding tools to deal with it instead of numbing ourselves with the compulsive behavior. Uh, have you shared these things with others? Sometimes I'll let a little go to friends I feel comfortable with, but I always spin it like it's funny or I have it under control and it doesn't affect me. I'm a good liar. I can even make you think I'm lying when I'm being truthful. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? Like I want to hear it on the podcast and that I'm a kook for wanting that. Uh, you're not a kook for wanting that, man. We all want to be seen. I mean, fuck, part of the reason I started this podcast is half of it was I wanted to let people know they're not alone. And the other half of it is I wanted to be seen and validated. And I still have that part of me. Uh, and continuing, and that all this will amount to some embellished story I tell to someone to make me think I'm proving how great I am. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Don't try to save or help or prove anything to fucked up people. You do you, boo-boo. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And um, I don't have a happy moment or an awfulsome moment or something to uh, send you out with. Uh, so I will just say that I am grateful for the people that I have in my life and you the listeners are a large part of that because I get um, to see myself through you through your surveys through your interviews through your emails to me and it has helped me grow and I don't know if that sounds like a load of uh, hokey bullshit but it's not and I am truly, truly grateful for you. And um, just never forget that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.